Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Kate Meisner of the band Jobber. We talked about Rance's 1995 album and Out Come the Wolves. We talk about how the band doesn't get enough credit for their musicianship as well as the characters they paint in their lyrics. We also talk about the intersection of punk and wrestling and how they make strange yet comfortable bedfellows. Jobber released their debut EP, Hell in a Cell, recently on Exploding and Sound Records. Check out the album wherever you do streaming and pick up a copy from the label right now. Kate also plays in the band Hellraiser and previously of Potty Mouth, so check those out too. Don't forget to check out our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we listen to records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at spinningoutpod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment and I hear reviews definitely help. Okay, let's chat with Kate. Hey, Kate. How's it going? It's going all right. Um, Canceled my booster shot, so I will be lucid throughout the podcast. I was supposed to get it right before this. (laughs) Yeah, you had to clear your schedule for spinning out. Indeed. I wanted to make sure. Indeed. It's a very serious operation. Yeah. Um, I I haven't gotten the booster yet. I mean, I've gotten all the other ones. I'm not coming out as an anti-vaxxer on this pod. but like I've just kind of like, guess wanted to see like where things were going, you know, with it. But also because I also heard like people were like, it like kicked their ass more than the other ones. But I don't know. So all that to say, I I I think that you made the right choice for delaying it before you are doing things. Indeed, last time I was crawling around on the floor like Gollum, like getting up and to get a glass of water I could barely stand <laughs> and I was like wow this will be a really interesting podcast trying to remember details about rancid um while under the influence of the booster shot <laughs> yeah yeah and uh if you're listening uh we are talking about rancid's album and out come the wolves it's their third album that came out august 22nd 1995 it was produced by jerry finn and we'll get more into that and it came out on Epitaph Records. And so it went gold. And then in 2004, it was certified platinum. But with all that said, when was the first time you ever listened to Rancid or this album? I would say sometime around when Indestructible came out, which is Rancid's album from 2004. And likely the reason that An Outcome, an outcome the Wolves went platinum that year. Um I had just really gotten into punk music. I had been listening to a lot of Green Day, as many do when they make their entrance into the world of rock music as a preteen. It was also around the time that Good Charlotte came out with The Young and the Hopeless. Uh, I heard Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous, I think, on the radio. And I just like my heart just stopped. And I was like, what the hell? is this and 
I drove to the mall. I didn't drive to the mall because I was 13. My mom drove me to the mall probably so she could go shopping. And I like ran to FYE and got that shit. And on the insert of the Good Charlotte CD, there is a picture of, of Good Charlotte. And I didn't notice this right away because I hadn't even listened to the CD yet. CD, which I would within weeks become obsessed with. And then I would Mm -hmm. become obsessed with all of the bands that Good Charlotte liked. Um, And I noticed that the guitarist had all of these patches on his shorts. So I started just Mm -hmm. looking up all of the bands on on this dude's shorts. And uh, it included like Minor Threat. I think there was like a Social Distortion patch. um, And then there was a Rancid patch. And I started with Rancid because shortly after i think they came out with indestructible in 2004 um they were on mtv that video was getting played on mtv maybe it was even made the trl countdown a few times and it was also getting played on the radio in central connecticut where i grew up where we didn't get the quite get the radio signals from new york but there was this one station in hartford that i listened to um that was mostly just you know, run of the mill, what would now be like lithium on, on Sirius XM, <laughs> like, like Nirvana and uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Green Day and whatnot. But they played the Rancid song Fall Back Down. And that was the first time I ever heard Rancid. And it kind of just spun off from there. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like for some reason, and I really can't put my finger on it, I just like skipped Rancid. Like I love Operation Ivy. Like it's an album that I listen to like all the time still. And it was really like one of the first tapes that I ever got. Uh, And but for some reason, by the time I feel like what I remember is not when this came out or I guess it would have been like the next record or whatnot. I thought that they were like sellouts, but I can't figure out why I thought that they were because I had previously liked Green Day and Blink-182, but all I can figure is by the time that I was like a punk, I thought that they were too big. Like I was more into like Riverdales or like more, I guess slightly more underground things, but that kind of like when you're young, I don't know if you had this experience, it's like I feel like all I talk about on this podcast is like drawing arbitrary lines and then kind of rediscovering that I was just like, it was, didn't make any sense, you know? So that's like, so I feel it it was of course like hard to avoid this record. And I don't feel like I had any like deep seated hate to them, but for some reason I just, I don't know if I really fully listened to this record start to finish until this from my recollection. That's fascinating. So wait, around what year would you say you were drawing these lines where you're like, all right, I'll listen to Green Day and Blink, but not Rancid? <laughs> um, this would have probably been like the, still probably the early 2000s. Okay. You know? um, so they were like fully ass on MTV and like collaborating with Good Charlotte and Pink and whatnot by then. So I can, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, like I was not, I remember someone being like hey you should listen to good charlotte and i was like no yeah i know <laughs> but i did not have the faculties as a young 13 to 14 year old to really understand why they were corny <laughs> yeah quite yet. <laughs> yeah but it's also like how when i look back on it when i think back on like good charlotte or newfound glory like i'm like 
it wasn't any more corny than any of the other stuff I did actually like. It's just like because they were on a major label as opposed to like Lookout. That like idea of like who is a sellout and who isn't is actually a really interesting through line on And Out Come the Wolves. Yeah. As as you yeah. might have read. <laughs> uh, have you read Sellout, uh, the Dan Ozzy book? I have not. There is a distiller's chapter, but it kind of works as a rancid chapter. Mm. I do it, know it's about hard. the uh, yeah. the little fracas with uh, rancid and the distillers that transpired. Yeah, it's, I mean, anyone can just like, just wikipedia right you know there's a lot of things that didn't probably age well uh with you know and i'm really putting it lightly um but it's it's i would say just you know not just to you like read the book because i feel like it fills in those kind of things and it it actually looks at it from a point of view that's not completely pointing the finger it's really completely like this is what happened so I could imagine someone reading it and getting mad because it's unearthing things, but it's really just telling it as it was from different perspectives and things. So, yeah, I, I guess, like, by that point, Rancid was fully on their way to be a major label band, but this isn't a major label release, so I don't know I don't know why my brain told me not to listen to this record, but it also could have been something as simple as, like my older brother didn't buy it so I didn't listen to it <laughs> because like that's like when I think about these lines I drew it's like if it got put in the house then I would have listened to it you know and no one bought it I remember just generally people were skeptical of Rancid at this time uh you know Tim Armstrong was song writing songs for Pink I believe mm-hmm. and they were sort of rallying behind and supporting all of these pop punk guys who were regarded as sellouts in the whatever 2003 to 2005 TRL era. Um, And I think a lot of people was a guilt by association thing. Um, And also their album Indestructible was not so well received. Uh, I recall, you know, as I said, that was my gateway into Rancid. And when I went to Hot Topic at the mall in central Connecticut. Um, Probably the same day I bought and out come the wolves on CD. I remember buying the rancid t-shirt for their indestructible album. It was like this bright red t-shirt with like the album cover on it. Um, And I used to go to these guitar classes where there were multiple kids in them. It was like play a play in the rock band kind of class. Mm -hmm. And I walked in in my brand new indestructible rancid shirt and this kid wearing a mustard plug shirt just looked at me and like shook his head and was like disgusting. I would have been the mustard plug kid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was fully into mustard plug, but for some reason I would have, yeah, I would have been shaking my head at, well, you the yeah the version of you that grew up in Wilmington North Carolina uh you know but like but then it made it where I was like totally down with no effects I was totally <laughs> down with bands that sonically like aren't much different really mm-hmm. so it's it's so funny especially like but I also did I liked I really liked compilations around this time frame I think it was like an easy way for really any kid to you know really be able to listen to a lot of bands you know and you know we're talking about pre-streaming so i had like given the boot volume two with and that had rancid on it and that had rancid affiliated things 
So, and I really liked, I even listened to that today. Nice. Give the boot. And it has like leftover crack and choking victim. And it has like, you know, rancid and things on it. And so I'm like, what is, what is the line I drew? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense is what I'm saying. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> yeah. So. I guess it, this was an important thing to happen with this kid, like scoffing at my indestructible shirt because I think that's what motivated me to get more into Rancid to be like, listen, like, what is he even talking about? Indestructible is a great album, but maybe there's something I'm missing. And Mm -hmm. that getting into Indestructible, the first album I got into was In Outcome the Wolves, um, which maybe we should talk about the first track of that record because... (laughs) The first track is this punk song called Maxwell Murder. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I had been you know, listening to pop punk. I, I sort of, I'd listened to Social Distortion at this point. I was, I was dipping my okay. toes in a little more. Um, I, I guess I, I sort of knew what punk music sound li- sounded like, but I was still you know, on the fringes of it. Um, but man, when that first track, Maxwell Murder, started and... I was like, this is what punk sounds like. Like, this is like a blueprint. And then Mm. when the bass solo came in, (laughs) I remember my 15-year-old self was just like, like freaking out. Like, my brain was exploding. I I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, And then the rest of the album is just weirdly like nonstop hits like that. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so i was like all right i get why this kid was pissed that i showed up in the indestructible shirt because this album slaps <laughs> yeah yeah it's i mean yeah it's it's like surprisingly i feel like in my head i downplay rancid because i think that they it's like i'm judging them against the worst version of like a street punk kid that i knew growing up growing up you know like and, but it's like clearly, of course, these like music, these like almost 30 year old men at this point, you know, are much better musicians than the guy that plays like in the cafeteria, you know. But I sort of like it's like <laughs> I thought of like a version of like bondage pants kid. Yeah. And then that's what I thought Rancid sounded like. The spiky you punks, know? just like your yeah, spiky yeah. mall punk, like. Remember, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but around 2013, like the cops in Boston were trying really hard to shut down DIY venues and they made a fake account for a guy named Joe Sly with like a bright green mohawk. Rancid literally looks like Joe Sly. (laughs) Yeah, there was. uh, And I think I mean, they they've been doing that kind of thing. Like I was in I remember there was a time frame where I was in like a fast punk band in like like 2010 and uh there were like tons of you know boston basement shows that was like the scene in boston for a long time for that type of music and yeah i remember that peripherally people talking about you know like oh don't tell anyone where the show is if they seem sus but but yeah that that is a strange thing too like i was trying to think about that style difference like being from the east coast to the west coast like was that a standard west coast punk look the way that rancid looks like (laughs) i don't know as an east coast punk i i simply have no idea (laughs) yeah 
but i i definitely think it was very like late 80s um to be flashy like that which is when obviously operation ivy was was going strong and you said you were a big operation ivy fan so i'm curious why when rancid came out or you weren't like all over it (laughs) i don't know like because there's there's so many elements like and also i think sometimes i'm only basing this on the stories i have created in my mind about other bands is sometimes whenever a band kind of splits and they go into other bands when i was younger i would kind of pick one and then i would just like disregard the were you aquabats or blink 182 i was totally blink 182 blink 182 (laughs) was like just a thing for me kind of before i drew the lines and so they almost got like grandfathered in Mm. but i also do feel like there was a point where when I was really into punk, where I felt like I was almost like secretly listening to Blink-182. Like it wasn't cool to like them, which sounds so funny to say now. Uh, But there was a time frame where it wasn't, I mean, it's, I guess it kind of makes sense. Like they're not like the coolest band to like, but they are a band that everyone likes. I have a theory that around this time period that you're speaking of, which I'm going to guess is somewhere around from like 2003 to maybe 2005. That to me is like it's even earlier. Even I'm, earlier. I'm, I'm trying hard to like not say my age on here because I, you know, that's things I need to work uh, through myself and through <laughs> therapy. But you know, like uh, it's so okay. Well, so I've purely given myself away already. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This is really my own like journey that I need to do. But like, given the boot came out in '99, mm-hmm. so I've already like aged myself. So I don't know who I'm fooling. Um, but I do, I do know that I didn't, I didn't listen to In Out Come the Wolves like new, mm-hmm. you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't of that age because it came out in 95. Yeah. I feel like I would have sort of known what punk was at that time frame, but it would have basically just been like, I think at that point in 95, I was just like, if I watched like Ace Ventura or whatever kind of comedy movie and a punk came on the thing on the screen, I was like, oh, I, I like that. You know, but that's all punk was to me at that point. Yeah. You know, it was like 80s movies on cable or something. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, it's yeah. really interesting because to me, like, Rancid, you know, looking at them with, like, fresh eyes, like, I had just discovered, like, punk and rock music. Um, They were, like, my cred building <laughs> band. <laughs> yeah. In a way. Um, And I... You know, when you first hear them, Tim's voice and, and Lars's voice, voice they're not palatable. Uh, no. And so it took me a minute to, like, wrap my head around that. But it also was like, wow, like, I guess this is what punk is. Like, you don't have to be a good singer. In fact, you could sound like crap, but it's cool. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had the moment when I was, there was, like, there was a time frame where my my brother's like a year older than me, essentially. And he would just like bring home like tapes or burn CDs uh, or whatnot at the time or just CDs he borrowed from a friend. And I would just be like, that's punk and that's punk. You know, like it was just like it. he would be like, yeah, that's punk, you know, but it'd be like, but mustard plug sounds nothing like uh, social distortion or, you know, or, you know, and so I was just like, oh, okay, it can just all be punk, you know? But I feel like, I think now, 
I don't even I don't know if at this time frame I would have liked Rancid's vocals, but I think I like them now because I've it's like I've come through the other side of like liking a bunch of like fast punk bands or like Siege and things like that. So it's like not having a good singer is like a good thing to my ears, you know, at this point, you know, so I, I like it's also really funny. Now. Like to me, yeah. there was a while where I would say maybe f- even as recent as five years ago where I would listen to Rancid and Outcome the Wolves every year and do like a litmus test like does this hold up and there were a few years where I came out being like no this is like corny and Mm -hmm. this is essentially like comedy rock it's funny to listen to but now I've changed my tune now that I've Mm -hmm. listened to it a lot more in recent months and even in like the past two years um and have really grown to appreciate it and appreciate the songwriting and in many ways like Rancid was kind of instrumental in teaching me like how to (laughs) write songs um, and understand song structure because their songs are you know they sound punk and they're fast and upbeat and up tempo but a lot of them have very clear like an intro with a catchy guitar lick a verse and then a clear chorus where like it's catchy as hell and then it goes back to the verse and then there's a bridge and then there's a chorus and I started noticing these patterns and as I was learning to write songs like I was really inspired by the fact that I like hadn't ever written a song before and didn't have any formal training on guitar at at that point. Um, And I was so like, I could wrap my head around it. Um, And that was really inspiring for me to pick up the guitar. But uh, I totally veered off track here. But what I was going to say is that as recent as a few years ago, it just, it didn't really hold up for me because I was like, this is really like, dorky (laughs) yeah i i had a big social distortion phase when i was a kid oh yeah there there was a time frame where like though i mean though i'm kind of talking about things seeming posery i thought the kind of like sub greaser look was like the coolest look when i was like in high school like i there was like a there was like a guy who went in high school with me uh, whose name was actually Sean Paul, which is funny. Um, and his dad owned the like local uh, surf shop, and uh, but he wore like leopard like creeper pants and did like a uh, like the I full quiff. The... <laughs> I believe it's yeah, called a quiff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I was like, that's the coolest look. I don't know how I can arrive at that. My parents would never buy me those clothes. But so the kind of social distortion vibe, which isn't far off from the rancid clothing vibe. So I, once again, I don't know where I drew the arbitrary lines, but kind of back to the comedy rock thing, I remember being on tour and we would put on like, you know, mainly uh, somewhere between heaven and hell by social distortion. And we would sing along to it and we're like, haha, we know all the words, but it's like, this is stupid, right? But then we just keep listening to it. And it's like, I come out the other end and I'm like, no, I'm actually a fan of this. Like, you know, that's like a weird thing to come out the other side and just be like, well, I like it, you know? It's strange. That is precisely how I feel about An Outcome the Wolves. Like, getting in a car now with people who also know the album and just putting it on, and everyone knows every 
word to every song, but also all of Tim's weird vocal inflections <laughs> in every song. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. doing like the Tim Armstrong voice, which is going to happen at least once in this podcast yeah. episode. Um, yeah, and, and doing the voice and all of that. It's just so fun. And I'm like, these songs rock. Um, yeah. There are a few, maybe that like a few too many. Um, the album is 19 songs, and it's yeah. I think runs. I wrote down 49 minutes. That's a hell of a mm-hmm. long time, and that's a hell of an album. What I will say though, with that length, because I feel like almost every episode I complain about the length of records, uh, and I feel like this is a quick listen. Like, nothing feels like it drags. I mean, I th- I'd be happy if things were cut, but, like, I, I think I also thought growing up that this was, like, a double record. Like, I thought this was, like, you know, uh, like a Clash record or something, like, you know. And I liked The Clash as a kid, but, like, that's another thing, too, like, kind of coming back to it as an adult. I was like, do I really want to dig into a record that I thought was, like, an hour and a half long? But it's it's not like it is more concise than I would have thought. And this kind of side note, I wanted to I wanted to start telling people that Rancid is better than The Clash just to like be a contrarian, (laughs) because I think that there's a lot of elements on this record, especially where I feel like they're doing the clash and they're going through all the hits, but they're doing it in a more concise way, you know? And so I'm like, I would rather listen to rancid right now than the clash. I personally agree. Um, I do love the clash and I think they continued that thread on their album from 1998. Life won't wait. And I think they were trying to make life won't wait like their magnum opus um, the great follow-up to was it, wait was there an album in between and Outcome the Wolves and Life Won't Wait? I don't think there was. Mm, yes, it were. I don't necessarily know. Um, uh, I can look it up real quick. But yeah, my hypothesis is that they were trying to make Life Won't Wait their London calling, but mm-hmm. it was they went a little too far in the reggae direction and lost the thread with a lot of their fans that, you know, they garnered from the success of Ruby Soho and time bomb and like the singles off of an outcome, the wolves. Yeah, no, there, yeah, there was, um, between, you know, 95 is when out and outcome, the wolves come out and then life won't wait in 98. So, Mm -hmm. you know, not, not really like, a long gap well at least my adult brain now but i think for the time frame people were probably like they're never gonna put out another record like like those kind and of then they put gaps. out another 19 song record <laughs> yeah yeah and i think i've had people tell me like oh you should listen to let's go you know and i, and I think i did and i'm like or you know which one came out after indestructible the one after indestructible the one after Indestructible must have been their 2008 album, which I don't know what it was mm, called. I'm also, th- I think I'm thinking of, uh, there was a time frame where I kind of like went, oh, like Honor is All We Know. Oh, yeah. I don't know about those. I think that yeah. was their oh, pirate right, I era. I don't know if I'm into that. Yeah. And Rancid 2000, is that kind of supposed to be their response to... Um, you know, life won't wait. I guess it's kind of like the to give some the fans something that they actually wanted. You know? Yeah, I, I think it is. And 
Rancid 2000 is revered as a pretty dope album. It's honestly mm-hmm. awesome. It's it's great. Um, I love Life Won't Wait, but it was kind of the polar opposite of, of what they were doing there, which was a lot more like reggae and ska influenced it was a very chill record and a lot of the songs on life won't wait it's very strange to be saying this about rancid but are like very beautiful love songs Mm -hmm. um and Uh. then rancid 2000 comes out and it's just like whiplash like all fast punk songs um that kick ass but definitely a, a vibe shift let's go was yeah that was before and out come the wolves yeah um, yeah and you know i I'm going to be real. Maybe this is sacrilege to say this, but I don't think I liked Let's Go quite as much as in Out Come the Wolves. But mm-hmm. uh, the one song, Radio, are you familiar with that song? Yeah. I think No Effects also covered Radio. Um, I think that's why I knew it. Yeah. Um, I loved that song so much, it ended up being my high school yearbook quote. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> like, it yeah. has, like, my picture, and then underneath it's, like, you know, a lyric is like, when the music hits, you feel no pain at all, rancid. And everyone else's quotes are like, Sylvia Plath or like JFK. Wow. Uh, did your high school have like a yearbook video? No. Was that a thing? Uh, I, I mean, it was at my high school. Where they would uh, have like photo montage and like Ken Burns style of like, I don't know. S- some of it, yeah. But a lot of it was like essentially, I mean, it was done by kids, obviously. But you know, they would kind of go around with the camera and then kind of edit it together into, you know, kind of walking around the school. And then so it had like little segments. Yeah. And then there was even like a ska music video. And yeah, this what? band, they're still a band. Uh, this band called Mad Hatters. They were like the ska band. In That's a great Wilmington, ska band name. <laughs> yeah. And they had a music video on the yearbook um, video. That's... So amazing do you still have it (laughs) i now and also i i told you before we started uh some some guy that lived in wilmington wanted me to remember things about wilmington music so that's why it's coming to my head right now but it also dovetailed really well into this because it's kind of like the time frame that i was really into like like epifat is what people would kind of call this sound i don't know if you've heard that term um I think on like turned out a punk. That's what he calls yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's like, it's just epitaph fat, fat records kind of sound. And so I'm like, oh, that, that makes sense. So around this time frame, when Mad Hatters and all the kind of the, the 10 year period that I'm talking about to like when you picked it up. Um, what's interesting is then I feel like I had already drawn lines, but you're talking about a few years later and they were writing for pink and that would make more sense in what, I would have drawn the lines for, but I feel like I had written them off before they were even writing for Pink. Yeah. So. And it's interesting because it's exactly what they didn't want to happen. Like they had, I mean, Maverick was trying, Madonna's label was trying to sign yeah. them and she actually sent them nudes in order to coax them into signing <laughs> the record deal. So that's yeah. sort of like the famed story. I think that song Disorder and Disarray and and out come the wolves is sort of pointing at that um, and recalling that experience. But they took a stand and they were like, no, we're sticking with Epitaph. Um, and they only ever released things on Hellcat and Epitaph since. And they never really went major label. However, 
in a Nardwar interview, Nardwar kind of blew up Lars's spot um, and brings up how they are distroed by a major label. And Lars just kind of like, you know, brushed it off, didn't yeah. really acknowledge it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they were trying to like avoid like people feeling alienated by them or like mm -hmm. they were uh, selling out or, you know. Yeah. yeah, there was a in Sellout, they talk about how um, the Stillers got on Warner or whatever it was. Yep. Um, I don't know if it was Warner, but basically they got on a major. And then so there's there is an album. Uh, it could be Life Won't Wait. I think it's after that. Um, they are technically on a major label for one of those albums, but it's still sort of like Epitaph's logo is on it. Oh, yeah. So there's an Epitaph, like, Warner record. Um, Interesting. You know. All right. So on their sixth album, 2003 Indestructible, um, that is technically a Warner release. It's Hellcat Warner Brothers. Okay. So in, in that, it, it's uh, 52 minutes long, uh, which is wild for a rancid record. But Sellout kind of tells a story. I can't remember what label... Um, distillers were on sellout kind of tells the story like essentially because distillers got on a major then rancid got on a major kind of to spite yeah indestructible was the spite album yeah. um and from what i understand like yeah the story does not age well um no. i i think it's possible that the distillers were on hellcat or epitaph and then after the divorce brody kind of got you know, shut out of the scene. Um, all of like the warp tour bands that they had been playing with, like the Vandals and Gutter Mouth and Bad Religion, all of these bands that had kind of embraced the distillers just outright like took them out, <laughs> like, you know, took them out back. And um, they just, yeah, um, went their own way. And then obviously had the really successful album Coral Fang and kind of lifted themselves back up. I love the distillers and I love mm -hmm. Coral Fang and I am very much team Brody. Um, I would say, uh, but yeah, that story was fascinating because when the news broke about Brody leaving Tim for, for Josh, another mm -hmm. kind of huge asshole. <laughs> yeah honestly both, both stories haven't aged well yeah two <laughs> two huge assholes um i i remember everyone was like really pointing their fingers at the distillers or like being incredibly misogynistic um about brody so coral fang was put out on sire and indestructible was put out on warner and hellcat uh so essentially the arrangement was like it'll be distributed through Warner, but we'll put the Hellcat logo on there, which is essentially uh, Epitaph. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to kind of like, I don't know, be an adult in that way and like need to compete like that. But, you know. Yeah, and have like a shadow label situation going on with a major. <laughs> yeah, like now we can kind of, I guess maybe people didn't see through it. I mean, there's so many things like that. I don't know how much people really care about that kind of thing anymore. Like the no. idea of selling out is kind of like gone now. And like we would probably like congratulate friends if they signed to a major. But also, does anyone really get signed to majors like that anymore? Yeah. And does you know? anyone really want to like given 
given the stories and really weird developmental deal structure that they use now to sign new artists, it seems like um, your chances are very slim of seeing success even if you are signed to a major label. So yeah, I don't think there's that type of scrutiny about it anymore. Um, there's more scrutiny around like other, I guess, <laughs> uh, eth ethical decisions that <laughs> a band could be making, signing a weird framing of signing to a major label as an ethical decision. But yeah. 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 I, th I think like where I see bands that sign with major labels now, I feel like the trouble is you'll probably record like a batch of songs, but they'll never come out. So you might be able to like buy a house, but I, I feel like there's so many, there's like bands in Charlotte uh, where I live, where I feel like they were like, oh, they got signed to this label. And then the album never comes out because they're like, oh, we never got a hit. You know, it's just kind of common to this time frame, but I feel like labels were like, we'll put it out and see what sticks because they could still sell. Yeah, CDs, they invest like you know? no money in their developmental artists and they'll be like, make an EP. We'll give yeah. you a shit ton of money to record it and then pump no resources into actually like promoting it or helping, you know, the band with any sort of marketing. And then if it flops on streaming, they're just like, why aren't you selling cds and why are streaming numbers so low and they um drop you yeah what is just funny because like so much of the streaming conversation is oftentimes built around distributors and yeah. you know it gets it's like if you have a good if if your release has good distribution you have a better leg up than just a band doing it themselves mm -hmm. so there's like more doors open uh, that's not even whether or not your band's good or not you know so it's like i don't know it's not a level playing field it never was so but i guess going back to rancid uh, then i was reading about how like 11th hour was a song it's called 11th hour because they recorded it right when they were supposed to be out of the studio yeah. Like, there's so many things on this record that I kind of now appreciate how straightforward parts of the record is that I probably would have scoffed at, like, 10 years ago. Yeah, I <laughs> read about that, too. And then I saw some quotes with Tim where he was like, this song is about standing up for your friends and family or something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, they have really bizarre like self descriptors for these songs but um there are a number of songs on the album about that sort of bidding war um one being Lars's favorite rancid song apparently um the song Junkie Man which is the one that kind of breaks out into that psychedelic bridge where Tim mm. recites a poem <laughs> yeah um and this he actually says the title of the album and out come the wolves um which is supposed to be a reference to like major labels <laughs> coming out and trying to get their paws on rancid which is uh, unbelievably corny to write songs <laughs> about that frankly yeah what's interesting about that i believe the poem is i mean i don't know what hand completely he had but it was i believe was written by jim carroll yeah yeah it was uh, um, the basketball diaries yeah guy. yeah leonardo dicaprio uh that's i feel like i've tried to explain who jim carroll is to people that are younger because it's like i don't really have a concept of who jim carroll was because 
people in Rancid are like so much more older than me. So the only reference I have with Jim Carroll is essentially Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> but that's not really accurate to who he is. He is know? like a punk poet. Uh, yeah, but he's like, okay, so have you seen the movie Basketball Diaries? I've seen parts of it. My partner it's watched like, it. <laughs> it's like the movie, I mean, I haven't watched it in years, but it's like, I think it's set in kind of a uh, modern time. Mm -hmm. But Jim Carroll grew up in like the 60s. And so there's a thing, there's now when you think about it with distance, I'm like, I don't think the movie takes the movie doesn't takes place in the 60s. It just sort of tells the story as if it were right. a modern tale. So it sort of changes the context of a lot of things. And then like Jim Carroll had like was like a spoken word kind of guy, but he also made music. Right. You know, and then but then. So now trying to think about like who Jim Carroll is in a modern context, like. I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. So it's kind of funny to me thinking of like a poet writing a bridge in your song and that being the album title. Yeah, there are a few references to these kind of like, I guess, maybe beat era poets. Um, they're at, at, Lars and Tim read a lot. Um, they're pretty yeah. literary people. In fact, there's some maybe like a solo Tim Armstrong song where he's talking about like the Canterbury tales <laughs> and he's like, and Chaucer. Like <laughs> yeah, that's and fucking I, wild to me. I think they yeah. read a lot. And um, honestly, like that ending up in the song was likely a result of Tim just reading anything he could get his hands on. I think Tim actually even wrote a book of poetry, which I very much regret not buying and reading prior to this podcast taping. Yeah. It, it's so wild because I was watching the 120 Minutes interview uh, with Matt Penfield. Yeah, yeah. And kind of the, just how Tim is, you know, it's like a, it's like a street vibe that I feel like doesn't really exist yeah. that much anymore, but it's like a, it feels like it's like when I think of like a John Joseph type, there's like a swagger and an energy and like a anger that just like they can't. That's just their default mode. Like, and I'm not even calling a question like his personality. It's just that type of personality. We don't make it anymore. <laughs> like, but that's like his default. Is Tim know? Armstrong the, the East Bay version of John Joseph? <laughs> In a way. I mean, you know, there's tons of layers to that that I hope he isn't, um, yeah. you know. <laughs> Well, he, he almost yeah. seems like more of a mellow dude. Like I think he he's is. very soft spoken yeah. and as I said he seems like thoughtful and somewhat emotional. There are those like wistful rancid songs, right? I'm let me like recall which ones. Like Olympia Washington, for mm -hmm. example. I think that's like a Tim and Lars maybe wrote that together, but Yeah. That song is it's awesome um it's one of my favorites on the record it's about tim being really bummed out he's in new york city and you know he's around his friends his friend lars is there he's with some like dudes he met in the east village he's chilling he's having a good time in new york but he's so lonely and still wants to be somewhere else because his then girlfriend toby vale was in olympia washington um, and there's a few lyrics in this song where, um, 
he's just like expressing this deep, deep like emptiness and wanting to be somewhere else. And that sort of persists throughout the entire record. And I don't know, like reading about that song and like his love songs from this era of Tim, mm-hmm. not like the Brody Brody era of <laughs> Tim yeah. where he transforms or maybe was an asshole the entire time. I don't know. Um, I, I perceive him as more sensitive where John Joseph is just like a tough guy. Like he's yeah. New York tough. He like knows all the guys on the block. I went on John Joseph's tour of the Lower East Side <laughs> a few years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and it, he, there are just people coming up to him and being like, hey, Johnny. And he'd be like, hey, oh, yeah, that guy used to do steroids at the local gym or like ah, I used to buy crack from that guy. And like he just knew everyone in the neighborhood. And like it was this aura of like street smart, like tough city dude that I feel like Tim maybe is like a, a sort of diluted uh, West Coast version of that. <laughs> yeah. That Then to kind of add in like poetry book, it, then he kind of actually becomes more of a Harley type. Because Harley is, like, of a family of, like, poets and, like, uh, like has that kind of history. So I feel like Harley appears like someone that would read Chaucer or something, you know? Like, I don't know why anyone's really reading Chaucer outside, yeah, of, like, outside of, like, in an English class. You know, go, yeah. like, your college English class. <laughs> That's the only time I read it, and I have no... I think that's where I learned the term cuckold, you know, which kind of become like a meme kind of thing now. But like, that's all I, I feel like I remember at that time frame explaining to my friend what it was and then not hearing about it again until it just became like an internet insult. Until the movie Cuck uh, was released. <laughs> yeah. but um, That's funny. I, I kind yeah. of feel like Tim is more edging on like, you know, he's from San Francisco. There was this whole hippie movement there. And he almost strikes me as like a hippie punk in a way, even though the mm. punks and the hippies are supposed to hate each other. He just has that energy about him. <laughs> that that kind of makes sense. I mean, like the San Francisco kind of Berkeley scene was, I mean, the hot spot of all of that psychedelic music. Yeah. And so it's like his age... Like, it wouldn't be surprising if, like, his parents brought him along to, like, I don't know, Blue Cheer shows or something, you know? Because um, that's, like, what would have been, like, hate Ashbury kind of stuff of that time frame. So, yeah, to kind of get that vibe. L- Lars is also interesting, too, in yeah. that he, I feel like he does allow himself to kind of, like, articulate it a little bit more, like, in the 120 minutes thing, um, like, how he, like, hugged tim you know that they are also like very sweet to each other um you know like they love each other (laughs) like it's so funny like there i don't know if it was in that interview or another but tim is like yeah i knew he was a genius and i wanted him in my band right away um yeah it's funny because actually tim asked billy joe armstrong to be in rancid uh prior to asking lars and it was only when billy joe was like nah man like I'm good. Um, that's when Tim actually reached out to Lars and he said yes. But I actually didn't know yeah. that Billy Joe Armstrong co-wrote my favorite Rancid song, Radio, from Let's Go with Tim. Which yeah. Is awesome. Yeah. Also, another thing, I, another angle to that same story I heard was that I think, I don't know, like, because the way he tells it on the 120 minutes, he reached out to him kind of after the fact. But there's another story that said that, like, they had either asked 
Lars earlier. Either Lars kind of had an interest and then didn't go forward with it. But then when Billy turned it down, he was like, oh, I should do this. So it was like the... And then supposedly, like, Lars at some point was asked to either play music i don't know about in green day because of the whole trio thing like play music with billy at some point and turned it down so they like lars was circulating around this network of people yeah it seems like they were all playing in one another's bands and through that like 924 gilman street was sort of like the scene there um it does 924 gilman even exist anymore uh we played there in 2019 and oh, i wow. will say it was a good show <laughs> It was a good show. It's a big space. And the rumor is, maybe someone can say if this is true or not, that essentially Billy Joe, like, subsidizes it. Yeah. Like, pays the bills there. I mean, that's like an internet rumor. I've never, I don't have the tax records. But, you know, so that's that's what I hear. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great venue. It's funny, though, because, like, basically on either side of the venue now or like just breweries like it's been totally engulfed in like gentrification like around that time frame and but you can get a sense that it was like a tough spot like probably even like maybe 10 years ago but it's i don't know it's such an interesting place i don't i don't know enough about that but that east bay thing is really interesting like there was a point in one of the interviews i listened to where he was like telling the bass player like oh do like a do you like an East Bay solo? And he was like, okay. Journey to the end and of the East Bay. Yeah. And so that he's like, and no one else would have known what I were saying by that, but Matt knows, you know. I <laughs> like, I don't know. I, like, are you familiar with that song specifically? Um, it starts with the bass line. Mm-hmm. It's like, do, 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 Like the bass line in itself is a hook. Um, that's definitely one of the ones I like keep in my back pocket and bust out from time to time. But um, I read that Tim wrote the lyrics and was just like, yeah, Matt, like write a baseline that like matches this vibe. And I guess they grew up together and understood one another on that level where he just like wrote the song um, around the lyrics, which is wild because it's such a structured and like hooky song. Um, I definitely would have yeah. thought like the bass part came first, um, which I thought was really interesting also the yeah. lyrics to that song are so on their own like reading them kind of cringe but in the context of the actual song like i remember listening to it on tour and <laughs> the lyrics are like four kids on tour three thousand miles in a car we didn't know what was going on or something like that and it's just like it it's just such like a jubilant anthem for just like being on the road and playing music i was like yeah this is great <laughs> yeah yeah there was uh so the isolated vocal thing that you i know we're jumping around a bunch no, but good. the isolated vocal track like when you're listening when i'm listening to rancid in the context of the song i know what type of singer he is but i i really feel like i'm like nope no notes but like when you hear it outside of the music i'm like how do you like comp a vocal from like how do you do uh, I think you should do another take, you know, because there's so many parts where it's like you can hear his breath. You can hear like he's like kind of getting out of time and all that stuff. But I'm like, how would you even know if something's like a bad pitch or not? You know, it's just it's just Tim. I read that Brett Gerwitz from 
bad religion was really instrumental in actually coaching and helping with the vocals on this record. And I have a feeling Brett Gerowitz was just like, do your thing, man. And then we'll like treat it afterwards. Um, What's fascinating is there's all these little weird like Tim ad libs in there where he's like doing these weird inflections like he was a writer and an artist and it's like I can remember them and I'm like I have to assume he can remember them too um, and that's just how he imagines the song to be in his head. I, I can't really tell what was like you know slapdash like this is just one take I'm doing it and what was actually intentional in his vocals but there's so many weird moments like that on the record where his vocals truly sound like shit but it becomes one of the most memorable parts of the song (laughs) yeah 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 like there's i always say like i feel like when someone is a legit good singer i'm a little like suspect but he's like the other end of that you know, it's like, it's like, I'm just like, well, you haven't experienced pain in your life. Like people that, that are just like legit good singers. I'm like, I don't hear any pain. <laughs> you know, like, I want to hear you Yeah, struggle. Tim Armstrong definitely like, he knows, he knows things. He's, uh, he's seen things in his life. What do you think about the, all the reverb on his vocals? That really was shocking to me in the ISO tracks. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I didn't realize it was like that much. It was so know? much. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And also I'm like, if he's so loose of a vocalist, I'm like, how do they get like, it's like, how do they get like the vocal or the like backups tight? You know, I guess it's just kind of like just wherever he lands, we'll do that. You know, it's like I I would wonder in like a practice if someone's ever like, uh, can you take that again? Can we like work on the harmony there? Or if it's just kind of like, you know, I know it's like a punk band, so it's like the differences of like, but they are very tuneful. There are lots of parts that have like backing vocals. Every song has an when in, like Lars said, comes intro, in chorus. with those harmonies. Yeah. Like I have a feeling Lars is the more concrete thinker of the two, and mm-hmm. he's the one who's like, "All right, like we need a little structure," or "Yeah, like let's I'll sing this harmony on pitch, and Tim, you do your little weird thing over there." <laughs> Um, but he gives those choruses so much depth. So it's like, you know, the, the melody is actually intelligible. Whereas in Tim's verses, sometimes it's just sounds like he's almost like, it's like spoken word a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause on the, there was like a Conan live appearance. Cause I I like watching like live appearances, kind of like see what a band kind of sounds like outside of kind of the studio treatment, you know? But that was a few years later, so they had, like, at that point, they had, like, a keyboard player, and that keyboard, or he was, like, a, I don't know, he did keys of some capacity, and he did backup. So it was, like, they were, like, very on point. Yeah. Like, they were a very tight live band, and then it just kind of feels like, like, Tim kind of stumbles to the mic and stumbles away, but when it's a chorus, it's, like, that guy on keys and Lars and, you know, the bass player, too, Matt they're like hitting it tight. And so it's an interesting dynamic. It's like, they just kind of know when to get out of his way and he knows when to get out of their way to like make it pretty. You know, It's fascinating. Like that's such an interesting point because oftentimes live, like Tim is jumping around. He plays that whatever Schachter hollow body guitar, the same yeah, one. I think it had. weighs 500 pounds. Like it, it looks, looks that way. It looks like it weighs 500 pounds. However, he's like, 
flapping around like like throwing it around like holding it in like one hand and like strumming you know about every 30 seconds or so playing Mm. essentially nothing uh but the band sounds so good and i think this really highlights the power of a good bassist (laughs) like yeah um matt freeman's bass lines first of all i think maxwell murder the bass solo in that song is maybe the only bass solo i can think of in a punk song at least where i can sing the whole thing from start to finish because it's just like melodic and hooky in itself but in rancid songs it's like the way it's produced the bass just jumps out at you it's like the bass Mm -hmm. in itself is is a hook and then there's these hooky guitar parts over it and then tim is just mumbling but when the chorus comes in it's huge and i'm like wow like there's so much like interplay and um so much intention behind the way these songs are are written that sometimes gets lost when i'm like cracking up at tim's vocals but (laughs) it's worth mentioning that it's like you know, on out of all 19 of these songs, I think there's like three I skipped um, mm-hmm. as a kid, which is kind of unreal, like out of that yeah. many songs. I don't know. What were the sta- standout tracks to you? Uh, I feel like I'm. it's going to be like pretty textbook. And I feel like the ones that have kind of like stood out, stand out for a reason. Um, Listed MIA is like a big one Hell that yeah. I feel like will go into my head. Um even honestly, Ruby Soho, even though I'm like, it feels kind of easy to pick that one as like the one. Uh, Olympia Washington is a really good one. Um, I couldn't, I think like the only, Junkie Man's really good. But like, I was kind of like, what's the context of what they're singing about? But with you saying that it feels more like about label stuff than actually like being on drugs. Cause I was like, it's I th- unclear. I mean, of course, it's a double entendre, I think. Yeah. But I was like, because, I mean, there are certain, like, not to get too deep into it because it's a record of a certain time. It's like, there are, like, words on this record that didn't age well. And, you know, but it's like, it's also, like, kind of, I think, given the context of, like, what you would have been called as a punk in 1995 yeah. and then the 80s, you know? So it's like, I think it's of that context. Like, it's not. When he says the F slur on the record, it's not, uh, I don't think it's disparaging in a way of like calling someone else. It's like someone calling them. Yeah. I think. I think, yeah, like calling me a. Yeah, he says, yeah, he says it explicitly. So it's like, so that's interesting because like there are plenty of bands from this time frame or, you know, that would use it to either as an irony thing to flip it on its head like descendants kind of do when yeah. they use use slurs or no effects so you can't really tell which way they're doing it unfortunately uh but this is actually from a context of like you're kind of putting on the clothes of the they really do love putting on the working class like oh yeah lower kid kind of thing they're good at it i mean i think it's like it's genuine for them it's kind of funny at this point or a little bit later to kind of still wear that they really do on this record that's such a good point because there's all of these like characters in all of their songs mm-hmm. yeah like there's ben zanato there's there's rude girl carol on the bus and and roots radicals like there's an entire song about like 
taking the bus and being sort of fucked up on the bus listening to reggae and like seeing all these weirdos and freaks from the bay like get on the bus and get off the bus and oh here's rude girl carol and here's like this mini skirt girl whatever um but they have all of these characters like throughout um that are part of their like working class upbringing and like just inherently like having songs about like having to take the bus and like daily city train uh, they really do wear that proudly on this record um and there's one song i have in my notes it might be at the end of the album. There's like this weird drop off in the album after track 14 where I really feel like yeah. I'm going to forget what those songs are. But then I when I hear I them, too much. I don't know, for some reason yeah. when I hear them, I'm like, oh, yeah, those those are great songs. Why are they tracks 15 through 19 on this album? Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't explicitly remember anything falling off, but I, I when I'm looking at the song names, I'm like, nothing's kind of coming up in my head. <laughs> But yeah, but but I don't feel like when I was listening to it, I was like, anytime I listened to it, I wasn't like, oh, I hope this is over soon. I was just along for the ride and strapped in. It's like you, you expect know, it I, to be over because yeah. you're at uh, track 16, but it's like still, still plugging and the good songs are still coming. It's a very strange record in that way. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, She's Automatic's a great song and that's track 12, you know, <laughs> like it's. That that you know, song on. maybe has the funniest lyric on the entire record, which is like the the way that she moves. Well, I was aroused. <laughs> 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 I have to admit that was one of my skips as a kid. <laughs> uh, that that thing that he does, because okay, well, I feel like when I'm writing a song, it's unfortunately some of it feels like holding on for dear life. Like it's like you know to be able to kind of like paint character so richly like it is a novel is we don't give this record enough credit <laughs> it's kind of it like is. what i'm stepping away from it because it's like it's perfectly simple and that because i think if you take what like tim probably brought to the song or like they they talk about in interviews you feel like these songs could as exist as like acoustic numbers yeah you know and you know, I don't, then kind of, I don't know, you know, they add Matt to it and then they add the drums and then they add Lars doing all the things. And I, I think maybe like we're saying, like Tim potentially comes in, he kind of mumbles some things. It's almost like a poem. It's like, it's like the, the craziest thing you've ever heard, like poignant, but it's not, it's not like rhythmic, I would assume, or it's not like poetic. I could be really wrong. But it feels like it's kind of like mumblings and they kind of take little pieces out and they're like, well, what's the chorus? And then they kind of add that to the backbone of it. And that's how you write a rancid song. It's almost like in a way, again, like that sort of stream of consciousness, like beat poet thing. I hear a lot of that in, in, yeah. in rancid, um, you know, especially in like, I would say the more out there songs on the album, which are not out there at all, like Junkie Man for for yeah. example um the song i was gonna bring up before like relating back to you know sort of the working class narratives they have is there's a song called you don't care nothing um and that they bring up yet another character jenny DeMilo. but there's all these references to like how difficult it li is to live in the bay area and how it's getting more mm -hmm. and more expensive and i was like damn they wrote this in 1995 and they were yeah. already talking about like cities and sort of like, 
you know, an influx of wealth into the cities and how, you know, their home was, was changing um, and making it harder to survive as a musician. And that just seems so like ahead of its time in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Cause I think that sometimes with like a, those are kind of clashisms that they do, but it's like we get to a certain age uh, and like personally I do where it's like, you kind of want, you kind of want something more said in a song, but then also I have to think about the fact that in the year 1995, or if you're like 10 years old, you know, 10 to 15 years old discovering this, this is what you actually need to be listening to as opposed to like a propaganda, because like a propaganda, especially later, you'll get there. And there's other East Bay bands that I think say it more intricately, yes. like, you know, 15 and then some of the they'll, they'll kind of talk about the politics in a way that are more astute but you're not going to be down with that when you're like 12 you know and so it's super important to kind of be able to like have these like entry level bands and not even in like a condescending kind of way that allow you to kind of start digesting these ideas so that you could move up to rancid but also as a a older person now um i feel like i appreciate this because i don't have to pull out like howard's in and understand something i can take it for what it is but still get all of that i think there's something economical about writing this way as opposed to trying to cram everything in like a hemingway versus a faulkner yeah kind of thing yeah and i think it's digestible because it's like you have some of these heavy topics mixed in with these really memorable catchy choruses and to be honest I don't think I really in a way I was like kind of I was like what are these guys singing about when I was 14 I I, I assumed some songs were about drugs and like yeah. some songs were about women but there actually aren't that very many of those on this album but with the rest I think it took a while for me to really digest what it was that they were talking about um and realize that they were talk talking about some very real things in this on this record yeah and i can't think of any like because i was trying to think of like comparatively to like a band around this time like the virus or something you know like they are way more poignant than i had given them credit for i think i had just kind of put shuffle put them into like street punk and then like didn't give them any credit which is annoying because it's sort of like if someone told you like i don't like ska and then you're like well that's a whole genre you can't you know or it's like someone's like grunge is horrible and you're like that's like a big phrase of a thing yeah, that you're not big blanket statement. You know? yeah so it's like a oh, rancid sounds like blank and they do but they don't there's a lot more to it uh, but what what's also interesting, I guess, your personal connection with it is that like Lars is like a big wrestling guy and we haven't yeah. gotten to that angle of it. Like um, I'm also surprised that I feel like this record has so many things that I feel like we could talk for like so much longer about <laughs> the nuts and bolts of each song I and know. what they mean. You know, and it's like so rich in that way, which I think is like a good thing. But I guess if you wanted to talk about like Lars's connection to kind of wrestling and like how that ties into like your connection with like wrestling and getting to you, I guess is what I'm saying. If I can be completely honest, I'm sort of new to 
uh, knowing that Lars is so into wrestling. Oh, okay. I yeah. learned in recent weeks that he had a wrestling podcast. Um, but I do know, um, I think I read an interview with him for some, maybe from like the past year. Um, but there's this wrestler in AEW all elite wrestling named Ruby Soho and mm -hmm. clearly got her name, uh, from the song Ruby Soho her gimmick, I guess, or character is that she's sort of like punk. Uh, in WWE, before she was released or left, her name was Ruby Riot, and she was kind of like this, like, <laughs> it's kind of like a riot girl gimmick. I don't know. It okay. sounds really okay. cheesy when yeah, I yeah. put it that way, but she was supposed to be this, like, punk um, wrestler. Uh, but yeah, she changed her name to Ruby Soho, and when she made her debut, she had a rancid perform the song. And I read wow. somewhere that Rancid was like so thrilled to be able to have a wrestler um, enter the ring to their music that they were just like cut a huge deal with AEW for it. Um, but that's also the first time I saw like what Rancid looked like <laughs> in many years. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, man. Like Tim Armstrong is like full beard dude. Like, like they're looking grisly but it was still so cool to like see one of my favorite bands from childhood um mixed with like one of my favorite forms of entertainment from childhood through my adult life um so that was yeah. really exciting well i guess like kind of going back to the you were saying like what's my favorite song from the record and i didn't really give you a good answer but i guess i'll say listed mia but on the inverse of that if you had to cut one song from this 19 song album <laughs> What would it be? I feel bad saying she's automatic because you said it's one of the songs that you like the most. So I'm going to say my other least favorite song, and it's The War's End. It's the one that starts where L Lars is like, Little Sammy was a punk rocker. And I was just like, oh, man. I think I heard it even when I was 14. I heard that first line, and I was like, skip. <laughs> my little, like, on my little disc man, I was just like, oh. Um, it's a song about, like, I think it's autobiographical about like Lars and his parents kind of being at this like figurative war in their household about him liking punk and kind of like mm -hmm. reading into like things that his parents perceived as like communist propaganda. <laughs> um, yeah. And like the war's end is supposed to be like the war in the household is, is over because he's growing up. But the song is just like such a bummer after hearing like 11 bangers in a row. Um, <laughs> It's, yeah they like really roll it back i think it comes right after disorder and disarray which is um a great song but it sort of signifies to me the end of the album i would definitely remove that or she's automatic because i was like <laughs> as i was saying like the lyrics i just couldn't deal with it even as it like a 14 year old i was like oh, yeah ugh. as as uh well someone that didn't spend a lot of time listening to rancid i don't think i realize outside of like backups that Lars had such a big role singing in the band. Wow. <laughs> like I just, I just thought that sometimes he mumbles and sometimes he doesn't. Like with, because uh, Lars, I feel like is a more clear singer, and Tim mm -hmm. will, like Tim will kind of mumble, but then also he does kind of come clear into parts. Like that's why it's like I can clearly tell where Lars is singing and Tim is singing, but there are times where Tim kind of goes into being more clear and that's always like it's kind of like strange it's like whoa i thought he's the mumble guy yeah, yeah. listed mia is um 
is like the preeminent Lars song on the on the album. Yeah. One that I was also yeah. shamed for liking by the same kid in the mustard plug shirt that I mentioned earlier. Um, I'm wondering if I'm a Lars guy. I guess if, if might people be. like try and pick one. Like I feel like uh, also something like she's automatic. Like if a song has like a good hook, <laughs> like that's what my brain like. I, I wish it were more deep than that. But like there's so many times I've talked about it on this podcast where it's like I will get into a hook of a song and then with my partner, I'll be like, oh, I like the song. And she's like, oh, that song's about divorce. And then I'm like, I didn't realize that because all I did was pay attention to this hook, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I'm just like a sucker for a good repeating hook. That makes sense. I mean, Lars, as I said, I have a feeling he's the more like structured thinker of the two and really Mm -hmm. is like, all right, like here is a guitar solo that's intelligible. Here is a chorus and a hook and here is a harmony, um, that's going to make sense of whatever Tim is mumbling. Um, and I think listed MIA is like just such like a cohesive song, um, it's kind of like a barn burner of the song, <laughs> if I had to say yeah. so myself. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess I was shamed for for liking that one too by the mustard plug kid. How how often do you think he actually? You, so you've seen Rancid live. Yeah. And like once or how many times do you think? I've seen them twice. Once at Warp Tour, um, the ten year anniversary of Warp Tour, which must have been two thousand three or two thousand four. And it was like a half hour set, you know, outside the sound always sucked shit at Warp Tour. Um, But I remember being like emotionally moved by it um, nonetheless. And then I saw them again when I was 18. Just kind of like, oh, I'm home from college. I'll go see Rancid. And I took this person I had just started dating and he ended up breaking his leg in the mosh pit. (laughs) Oh, wow. Dang. So that's, a, I guess that would make it a memorable thing, yeah. but not for the right reasons. Don't really yeah. remember anything about the show after that, but because yeah. obviously I was tending to someone with a broken leg, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess like, uh, do you remember when uh, a few years ago people kind of isolated uh, Courtney Love's guitar? Yeah. Do you remember that? And yeah. then I feel like there were a bunch of dudes that were like, wow she's so bad and then it's like and i think they were doing that with her guitar and her vocals like and it was like yo if you ever had your vocals isolated isolated at a show like you would be mortified like and also if you hear all that distortion like i would bet whole sounded awesome and it's like but the point of bringing that up is like I don't feel like growing up and there's a clear reason (laughs) all of this is going to be very basic when I'm done with whatever the fuck I'm saying. Um, I don't feel like growing up. Anyone ever said like Tim can't really play guitar that well. And it doesn't really matter. Like he's a great performer, but on the inverse, people will do that. Courtney love. I mean, there's, this is rhetorical. Obviously we know the reason why people do this. Like, um, but it's it's interesting that kind of to compare that, you know, that scrutiny. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I kind of, you know, it, it almost like doesn't matter that Tim doesn't touch his guitar. It's it's really it like yeah. he is a, a great performer. I will say that Lars definitely holds it down. Like he's probably the better guitar player. He definitely is a better singer. <laughs> Yeah, I think, like, if you're at a point in your career with, like, 
where you know Tim is and it, where Courtney Love is, and if you if they are not great guitarists and they're as far along in their career as they are, they've won. Yeah. <laughs> because like the idea like growing up is like you know and I get it like you know practice your arpeggios and go to guitar class, but it's like they're a good example of like nah just be like good be good with what you have you know and that it's so funny it's like no i think they're doing it right like you know like you don't have to be like ingbe you know it's really interesting you're bringing this up because i remember shortly after the divorce or maybe it was the first interview since brody and tim's divorce where brody was really like divulging was talking about how you know people were obviously in- incredibly shitty towards her in in the aftermath of that but she seemed to have this like complex about her, maybe from being compared to Courtney Love so much or being like shamed so heavily or scrutinized so deeply where I remember in this interview, she was like, if you're a woman and you're playing music, like you need to master your instrument or like you're just going to get shit for the rest of your life. And at the time when I heard it, I was like younger and more impressionable. I was like, oh, I, I better practice like guitar a lot. And no yeah. one, no one's ever going to take me seriously. But now I'm thinking, I'm like that her thinking that is probably a result of trauma from this, this, this experience yeah. of being so heavily scrutinized. And it actually started seeming really sad to me after that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the truth of how, you know, things are perceived. Like I think it's, it's. To, I'm saying it kind of like, of course, you know, like women kind of have to be, they have to feel like they're going to be 10 times better than a man because, you know, of these things like Brody was saying, like that, that's kind of the history of all of the stuff. Like I've even seen people say like, oh, if you, if you look at your fingers while playing, you know, like, like oh. you know, and then like, oh, make sure you can read sheet music and i'm like why you know but 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 it's like if you've had that trauma and people kind of telling you or sort of being like impress me you know i bet people kind of go to a distiller show or a whole show and they're like you better shred but you wouldn't do that to like someone like tim you know yeah it was just like hopping around like holding his guitar like this while singing (laughs) (laughs) like who cares really but it's it's a I'm just talking about double standards, my, um, obviously. My, I do art therapy um, where I just, like, paint while I'm in therapy. And my uh, art therapist refers to this as art scars. Like, usually saying something like that and being like, you need to master your instrument or no one's going to take you seriously is, like, the result of, like, a serious art scar that happened sometime <laughs> earlier in your life. So, yeah. yeah, thinking about that, like, I don't know. Anyone's vocals are going to sound like, crap when they're dry as a bone going direct in with like no room noise in fact that happened to me several weeks ago and one of jobber shows was live streamed and i was like holy crap (laughs) yeah yeah there was a live stream show during the pandemic and it was like i had just started a new job that i'm still at but i made the conscious effort to like tell people i was in a band um because it's slightly more of a creative field now i kind of regret it in hindsight but but like, I, and then I was like, "Hey, you should watch my live stream." And then I saw the live stream after the same thing, and I was like, it was, "This was like 2021, so it was like I hadn't really sang in a live setting for like a year." And essentially, two songs in, I probably sounded like Tim Armstrong. <laughs> and it, but that's like that's all they've seen me do, 
up to that you know, still now like oh, you know man. so i'm like <laughs> you know so they're never coming to see my band play uh you know but yeah that's like a it's oh it's so hard to like listen back to those kind of things like i don't know i did have a great time listening to the tim armstrong isolated vocals this morning though just like cracking up yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like the van halen one uh the david Lee roth <laughs> yes. isolated. those are priceless and that's also a person that it's like this man is a performer yeah incredible like, yeah that hands down like probably one of the best performers like is he a great singer no but you can't do what he does like the personality that like David Lee Roth, you know, um, Tim Armstrong, these people inject into their bands like you can't learn that. Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan Davis, isolated vocal stems. Also pretty amazing, actually. Like generally, like 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 genuinely, he is a great singer and a great, (laughs) great vocalist. Yeah. Uh, I guess like kind of. To shift out of it, because, yeah. okay, so you're in a band called Jobber. I am. And Jobber is a, uh, well, I feel like it's like, I know there's a clear gimmick with uh, gimmick. It's, I don't even want to use that word, but I guess that is kind of the intent of the EP. So before I guess I get into that, uh, when did you get into wrestling? Like, like how it's just a lifelong thing? Yeah, interestingly, as a kid, it was more passive consumption Uh, I grew up in central Connecticut and some of the kids in my neighborhood were into wrestling and I would just be over at their homes after school, you know, waiting for my parents to get home from work or just hanging out Um, and wrestling would be on the TV. So I was aware of the wrestlers and the storylines and I really enjoyed it. But my parents were not about to let me watch wrestling (laughs) at all. So um, again, my consumption was very much like you're at your friend's house and you see it or you're passively consuming it because wrestling was everywhere in the early Mm -hmm. 2000s. Um, But it wasn't till later in my life in my early 20s that I got really deep into wrestling. This is like when people get like into anime when they're 32 after like not being into it their whole life, which will probably happen to me, honestly. Um, Anime is awesome. But uh, a member of my old band, I was in, used to be in a band called Arm Candy, and um, our guitarist was doing music supervision at WWE. And she often had to watch the pay-per-views and episodes of Raw to tag when they would play Nickelback or, you know, Limp yeah. Biscuit, <laughs> just mm-hmm. so, you know, they could get their, their publishing money from it. Uh, so... I watched WrestleMania with her where she had to do the same thing and go through and tag. And it just so happened to be like an incredible WrestleMania where someone cashed in the money in the bank briefcase at WrestleMania. And it was this mass spectacle. I think there was like a roller coaster on the top of like the stadium and fireworks. And I really like things that are camp and rooted in spectacle. So this spoke to me. Um, And I actually started getting into the storylines and uh, I got really into WWE again and started watching Raw and SmackDown every week. At that point in time, WWE didn't have a really like viable competitor. Um, mm-hmm. More Only more recently did that happen. So 
And now my attention is split between WWE and AEW and then all these like indie wrestling promotions that I'm interested in and like local indie wrestling promotions. So it's just a whole world of, of wrestling swirling around in my brain. Yeah, I um uh, growing up I had like a complicated relationship with having a uh TV in the home. Ma- mainly we were really religious and so those time frames where my parents were like it's evil. So the time frames that we did, I would, you know, kind of passively like wrestling like my grandfather was into it, like he would put it on. Um, but he never talked to me about it. It was just on, <laughs> you know. And but this was like for some reason I was like just I was WCW. Like I was like, that's my it, talking about the drawing line thing. I was like, I am not a WWF person. And there, there were cool. like ex- exceptions, but I was like, I am completely WCW. And then, so whenever it went away, I feel like I never really got back into it, but I was probably more passive like you, but I had friends that were like crazy into it. And I remember in like middle school, just going on the computers in the library and just typing like WWF.com. You know, like by that point, <laughs> yes. it's like anything wrestling. But I never like, I guess it's like at some point, I, I've i always surrounded myself with people that are obsessed with wrestling, but I feel like I keep a distance. I think because it's like I can only have so many hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> like I can only like, there. it's like, it's like I can't really I don't have the time to get into like basketball or baseball because I'm in bands and blah 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 and you know, it's a and lot. all that stuff so it's a lot to take in all that stuff and kind of like following it you know that's like hours of your life you know that you've committed to it yeah, yeah. and I am also I watch baseball I'm a Mets fan and then I also watch Real Housewives and The Bachelor and all sorts of shitty reality TV shows. And I can't, ke- I cannot keep up with all of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, it seems like there's just too much wrestling to really stay super on top of right now. But yeah, is it, do you feel like wrestling is at a good place right now? Oh, or is yeah. it kind of like, I mean, I feel like it's like, like, cause what I always point to, kind of everyone does, it's like the NWO era like do you feel like we're yeah do you feel like we're in that now with certain things i don't think Uh, we're ever gonna get another attitude era i mean that was monday night wars was a very special uh time where it's like you know the two promotions were just airing at the same time and trying to outdo each other and mm -hmm. just really bringing out their 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 best um and it was incredible and extreme like we're never gonna get like a situation where like Brian Pillman like pulls out a gun on on raw and then the screen goes black and you're not sure if he he shot Stone Cold Steve Austin or not you're never gonna get that again yeah and is is Brian Pillman is that is he also is that flying Brian or is that a different uh, Brian? I'm not familiar with that hold on see me... this is I think this is where I'm really aging myself oh. with flying Brian oh, but yeah. flying Brian I remember there was a time where there was a guy uh oh yeah it's him yeah Okay, that's him. I remember there was a time where he got carried out of a ring by uh, El Grande. Is that what I believe his name was? Because he like broke his back or something. But I, I can never figure out. I haven't done the research. I don't know if like that was a TV thing or if he actually did hurt himself in that way and had to be carried out of the ring. But these guys obviously do like destroy their bodies for it. You know, um, you know, like I've seen like 
talking about not really it's like i'll catch up on the big moments like i'll watch i've watched the like documentaries you know about like wrestling and you know kind of the ones that people tell you you have to watch that one like what beyond the mat is that the one (laughs) um beyond the ring i think beyond yeah and then like the dark side of the ring obviously those kind of things yeah so it's like i'm just i try and like keep involved like bob mold was like a wcw writer you know um during like it's just crazy connections like the the point i guess i'm making is like there always seems to be a connection between like we'll say punk and quotes and wrestling yeah you know it's it's so my friend who used to work on warp tour said that pretty frequently everyone would get together like the crew and the bands and they would get together and watch raw or the pay-per-views on tour buses um there's especially like a huge connection between kind of like the warp tour punk world mm-hmm. and and new metal also um like yeah. family values tour um era and and wrestling as well and now it's interesting like i've there was like a turnstile song maybe as an nxt theme i guess you know there there's still that that link i know mm-hmm. that a lot of wrestlers and musicians are now friends and like really connecting over the lifestyle of being a wrestler and being a musician, which there are striking parallels <laughs> between the yeah. two. So with the wrestling chat that we're having now, um, so what is a jobber? Yeah, a jobber is an insider wrestling term. Um, that means a wrestler who's hired to lose a match uh, to the bigger stars, so like the oh, okay. the John Cena's, the Rocks of the world. So you know you need uh, a, a winner and a loser in every match, in theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and oftentimes um, they will get someone to job, quote unquote, job uh, to the superstars. So it's a bit of a tragic role. Um, you know, you come there and you you get paid to lose and sometimes be utterly humiliated. Well, what's interesting is I feel like some of those people that I guess I didn't know the term, like the characters back in like the early 90s that were the jobbers always had like the cooler things because like there was like a guy. Yeah, it was like I feel like there was a guy named like Big Josh. And it's (laughs) like I remember his name. His whole thing was like he was like a Paul Bunyan type and he actually had a thing where he did a log roll. So he just kind of like when someone was on the ground, he would just step on him like he was log rolling on him. Um, and then there was like a guy that was like, it was basically, he had a wizard of Oz gimmick. So he just dressed up like a wizard, but I don't, it's like, he's not a known person. So I assume in a way he's kind of a jobber because these people aren't the stars. So they probably lost those matches that I'm not remembering, you know? And usually when people have like silly gimmicks like that, you know, they're being set up to be jobbers. Like, yeah, I was really excited when this one guy, Elias in WWE, he um, he comes out with an acoustic guitar and sits on his stool in the middle of the ring and just starts like doing a solo set, being like Hartford, like everyone here smells and like singing this terrible like singer songwriter like solo doing this yeah. solo act where he's just insulting the city. And like then he'll just like tune his guitar and like play like sing really out of key and i was really excited mm. about this because i found the humor in it as a musician but you know he was just he was being set up to to job to you know whoever daniel yeah. bryan at the time or like seth Rollins. yeah but they're not it's like okay so then there's like a heel and a face 
And so it's like a uh, heel wouldn't really always be a jobber. Like it's it's like that's a different role completely. Like yeah. a heel, like a heel is like the villain type. Yeah, the yeah. heel is the villain in the match, and the face is sort of the heroic protagonist of the match. But, you know, Jobber could be a heel or a face. In the case I just described, Elias was certainly um, a, a heel, but there are also yeah. face Jobbers. Like, there was a guy, No Way Josue, who used to come out and, like, start a conga line around the ring and, like, his whole thing was that he would just, like, dance during the matches, and yeah. he was a face Jobber. <laughs> yeah um because uh, that's interesting i guess it's like well because a lot of times it's like a heel people love to hate them you know yeah it's, you know so i don't know it's just there's so much to that uh, being from where the region you're from have you heard of a band called black ss no i haven't they were like a hardcore punk band and all their stuff was about wrestling oh my god that's so cool what like yeah. years were they active uh, probably up until about like oh six, oh, maybe later. Out. But and they did a reunion kind of. Uh, they, well, they were Syracuse, um, so a little bit further out. But like they were kind of known in that area, and they like all of their records. Like I'll send it to you after this. Like have some wrestling theme to them. Yeah, and they they have like uh, one of their big songs like Terror of the Northeast. Like um, I'm a but, little yeah. freaked out by one of their band logos. <laughs> Well, yeah, it was kind of a, uh, it was a, that was kind of like, it was a little before kind of mysterious guy hardcore. Yeah. Um, but any, so many bands had like band name SS, which yeah, hasn't like, aged oh. well. Black Sheep Squadron is what that was. Got, but, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. That sounds so more familiar. Yeah. And there was like another band called like Religious SS. There were so many bands around that time frame that had SS, mainly because of like SSD. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like in hindsight, you're like, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a band from Philly called Ultramantis Black right now. And Ultramantis Black is a wrestler, but also he's like the front person of this band that's Piss Jeans adjacent, I believe. So there's yeah. like, you know, there's the wrestling bands out there we're not the first to to do this thing um and honestly yeah. i think like we try we bring like the wrestling energy into it like we start fake feuds with other local bands and try to intentionally start drama with them um and like our songs are about wrestling and sort of all the videos and and lyrics have a wrestling through line but there's actually another band called Jobber, like outside of Boston, and they go really hard with it. Like they come out wearing the belt and the mask, but it kind of comes off as like it's like a little uh, I don't know cheesy or something. Sorry, yeah. other Jobber, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, I I mean I feel like it's like it's like with your EP, you know, it's called Hell in a Cell. So it's it's all there, but I feel like I can just I don't really have to think about wrestling when I'm listening to it. Yeah. I can kind of just take it for what it is. I know the music video is, is like all wrestling, but I feel like it's like oh, they're they're just songs outside of it. So yeah, and know. we wanted to uh, try to bring like wrestling to other people who weren't as into it or just hadn't experienced it, and kind of highlight the the fun things about it. Um, and also highlight it where we could as like an art form. Uh, I think wrestling has kind of been undervalued as, uh, you know, a, a <laughs> form of entertainment. 
um, but also like as a, it's not really a sport, it's not really entertainment. So um, it's kind of considered, I guess, low brow, but in reality, like wrestlers have to be incredible athletes. They have to be really good actors. Um, they have to cut really good promos on the spot and be quick on their feet. It's a really challenging job and wrestling can be really beautiful. So we intentionally tried to work with you know, photographers and, and artists who celebrate wrestling, especially wrestling at a, a local level. So we can kind of bring that um, to people who otherwise might not be exposed to it at all. Yeah. And I guess the kind of the last question about like wrestling, do you think like wrestling is, are younger people getting into wrestling? Do you feel like, because like, even when I look at wrestlers, they're often, most of them are like 40, you know, like that's like the young wrestler. Like, I don't know outside of like bad bunny kind of being like a stunt that, you know, WWE kind of pulls and stuff like that. Are there like young wrestlers? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the wrestlers, especially on the indies um, and like local wrestlers in New York, these are people who are like 19 23 but then there's also people who are like 34 and are just yeah. like i want to learn how to wrestle and and wrestle like a moonlight as a wrestler um so i think it varies the bigger promotions when they have you know new developmental groups of wrestlers come in some of those people are kids there's they're super young um and they're just nerds. They've been watching wrestling since they were seven, <laughs> five, seven years old, you know. Um, and this is what they've always wanted to do. Actually, in the music video we made for Entrance Theme, we filmed that with a backyard wrestling promotion in Milford, Connecticut, which is kind of oh, close wow. to where I grew up. And I think all of them are maybe freshmen or sophomores in college, and they are just wrestling fanatics, and it's what they want to do and they put together these shows like twice to three times a year and I to me that says that there are a number of younger people into wrestling um as I mentioned like it I have this theory like wrestling is like a family form of entertainment mm -hmm. when you're a kid like families get together and sit in front of the tv and watch the pay-per-views and it's like a, a moment of connection it's almost like watching a sports game so i think there's always going to be new cohorts of wrestling fans coming up and new people also right now is a really good time to be a wrestling fan because you have a lot of different things to choose from i will say i don't know if there are a lot of young people like kids watching aew that seems a little more like for some reason, a little more adult to me than WWE, which they purposely market to children. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, insulting yeah. our intelligence along the way. Yeah, and I guess before I truly let you go, um, okay. if you wanted to, like, where can people find you, and you know, when the EP is coming out? Yeah, uh, where can people find me? <laughs> like in the digital space or in the, in the streets? <laughs> in the streets. Yeah, in the streets. Um, you can find me at a local indie wrestling match, or you could find me on the M train or, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm um, wherever, uh, hanging out, uh, with buds, whatever. Um, uh, in the digital space, uh, you could just find jobber on Bandcamp. Um, we're just jobber, jobber.bandcamp.com. Um, you can buy our tape. Uh, our record label is exploding in sound. And you can head on over to the Exploding Sound Bandcamp to pick up a cassette. 
There are a lot of other wonderful bands, um, if you like us, that you will surely like that are on Exploding in Sound. So uh, check that out. And I will be tweeting and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything like unbelievably stupid that I said that you should cut out. <laughs> Welcome back. Thanks again to Kate for coming on the pod. Check out the new Jobber EP right now. It's really good. And next time, we're talking with Paisley Fields about Graham Parsons, so tune in next week. Once again, don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode with my Patreon co-host Sarah and I every week. So what are you waiting for? Also, please follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment, and I hear reviews definitely help, so do that. Thanks, as always, to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod, and pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week. <laughs>